0: Welcome to the Sum of It All, Humanizing Disability and Mathematics podcast. I'm Audrey Medeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education, and we're back for Season 2, Exploring Humanizing Disability and Mathematics Education by Paulo Tan, Alexis Padilla, Erica Mason, and James Sheldon. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. In this episode, we begin Part 2 of the book on paths to humanizing mathematics of students with disabilities. And we're diving into chapter five on exploring disability knowledge and identity as tools for humanizing mathematics. Um, And we're gonna jump with both feet into this water uh, straight off the bat here. Uh, This chapter talks about implicit bias um, and the difference between your intent and impact of what we think and say um, I'm going to start us with a quote here that the myth of disability as tragedy is by no means peripheral. Its effects are so pervasive that they pollute people's everyday understanding of disability, impacting teachers and education institutions at all levels. And I have to say, Mark, um, this book has definitely been that for me. It's, it's like a fog or the air we breathe, just like with racism or other things that are so systemic. Um, that you don't even realize it's there and, you know, several chapters of doing this work, I am realizing just how much it is ingrained in how I just see the educational system, how we speak about students with disabilities, about people with disabilities, um, and that we're still holding up this, you know, last time we talked about this word normal, that we're holding people to some mythical normal um, measuring stick, and so while it's not intentional, these um, beliefs are having a huge impact on our students. Um, what, what are you thinking about, about the way this, this chapter started?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just continue to be reminded about how, how language matters. I mean, we, we talked so much about that word tra- tragedy in our last episode. And just even the, the notion of identifying a student in, with a label, right? Students with disabilities. Uh, English lear- learners, <clears throat> excuse me, these, these terms, these phrases just start to take a meaning of their own. And they have this, these all this baggage of, of beliefs that we might have around particular students that we've decided ahead of time, oftentimes before we even meet the students. I'm often thinking of the cards that I got before I received my class each year and how I might look to see you know how many students with an IEP do I have coming into my classroom so really just that deficit mindset of the language that we use to describe students Audria, just uh, still thinking about that going into this chapter
0: it's a great point mark i i'm acknowledging that there are things about this i hadn't i hadn't thought about how all of those pieces kind of continually build that fog or that air around us that we're not even mm-hmm. realizing um, another quote from this chapter said that where educators perceive that disability um, of an individual identity is so strange that it requires a special form of pedagogy ie special education, that their credentials make them either qualified or not to support the learning of quote unquote those students And I you look at that and you're like that is so true we have we have labeled ourselves to say there's a different way to teach these I'm putting big quotes you can't see them in the air um, these <laughs> students, Um, that you have to go to a different credentialing program. You don't have the same credentials if you are a special educator versus a generalist, Um, that we have a different term for it, the special education versus general education or quote unquote normal education. I mean, we have it baked into our system all the way through.
1: For sure. And you know what I'm thinking about, Audrey, it's like we have all these things happening, but I think we oftentimes don't think about the student walking in the shoes throughout the school into classrooms, like, how does that affect them? You know, with, with all these labels and all the things that you're mentioning, you know, there, there's this cause and effect thing that the authors bring out, you know, the the students are told implicitly or explicitly that their lives aren't worth living, even to that extent, the authors mention, Or in other words, another way to say it is that their lives don't matter. And so I just think that that impact on the students and that vicious cycle that feeds itself um you know i think that's that's really heavy and something something that we really should consider and i think that we're so busy being well intended around you know saving students that we don't stop for a second and see what what about all this commotion around them that we're creating how is that really impacting them about how they view themselves
0: I really appreciate that, Mark. And acknowledging that to build on last chapter and last episode, um, disability is one of many identity markers that they have, right? And that that doesn't mean that they see themselves as lacking of something, but that's part of just who they are. Um, And I think that's just a really important piece that as we try to shift away from this idea of disability as tragedy, and think about it in a different light that we really consider how we kind of continue to push back on that as we hear phrases, as we catch ourselves saying things, as we um, acknowledge pieces of, of things in our, um, our system that operate in a way that that puts those two words together. How do we continue to try to break those apart?
1: Yeah, and I, I think the way we do that, Audrey, is we have to embrace the fact that our work is about is not about intent, but impact. I think we have to get out of our own way about this whole notion of like, I care about the kids, I love my students. Um, yeah, that's a given. Let's 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 talk about the impact that we're actually having and the unintended impacts that we may not even be measuring. And uh, I think when we start doing that, uh, then we have a chance of really authentically caring for students because we'll know what our impact is on their lives.
0: That's a great point, Mark. And I think for folks who are just, you know, already we're knee deep into this, this <laughs> story and we haven't even really started much of this podcast already, but like there are ways for us to start to examine our implicit bias, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. Um, it's worth mentioning um, this week, perhaps that there's a great set of videos off of the New York Times um, sure. series called Who Me Biased um, and they're short little clips, but they really push at how do you understand what implicit bias is? Um, And the difference between that and being racist or being um, someone who is um, against people with disabilities for some reason. But how do you start to look at that and see the fog for what it is and recognize that the water we're swimming in is water, that kind of um, metacognition or lifting yourself above to really see the situation we're in might be a really valuable um, asset to to dive into.
1: Yeah, I agree, Audrey. I I found those videos powerful. um, So I, I really recommend them as well. Well, Audrey, I'm thinking, um, you know, as you were moving through this chapter, what caused you to pause? You know, what grabbed your attention?
0: Um, that's a great question. There were two stories that were brought up here in about um, two different parents and their children's experience in the chapter, and Angelica and Estelle. and um, And there was this lovely quote that I think is going on my quote board at my desk um, mm-hmm. that, that the authors connect with a colleague, uh, Dr. Jessica Hunt says, anticipate everything and assume nothing. Mm. And I think the two stories really showcase how in one case, an educator was anticipating everything and assuming nothing. And in the other case, an educator made an assumption and what that caused. And so I just, I, I think to those pieces about how we can um remove the assumptions that we're making or slow Mm. ourselves down from them. The power that educators really have each educator or people within the system, um, even folks who are not in a classroom setting, but in other settings have on the future of a child and how they view education um, and the the great implications that are there um, for all students, even students without disabilities who are in the classrooms with students with disabilities um, and how they perceive their, their colleagues.
1: Wow, I, I think that's such a good point. Um, it actually reminds me recently, I, I, I saw a, a student speak, um, happened to be a student with disability, and uh, that parent was talking about how that student's impact on the rest of the students in his class was profound. In fact, um, through their experience of working with him as, as a, a student in the classroom, they were actually impacted in the types of career choices that they even made um, in their future. And man, I just thought that was so powerful. So I think it's really well put how you said that, Audrey, is not only can we be an influence on students as educators, but the students themselves that are around each other can be an influence. And I think that, um, I think sometimes we're surprised by things like that. And I think we should consider why we're surprised because we shouldn't be Um, if we're really ripping off all those labels and allowing kids to be together and support each other. um, I think they know a lot more than we do sometimes in those settings, right?
0: It's so true. It's so true. And to think then about the um, pieces that need to be kind of dismantled to make that happen. Right. So, um, you know, they say in the book, typically math, education arrangements in schools subtly or not so subtly (laughs) reinforce the notion of disability as tragedy. And they name tracking, they name remedial classes, they name self-contained classes, um, grouping within a class by ability. And all of those pieces, when you think about when we do those things, how we reinforce the notion of disability of tragedy, um, I'm really wondering if it's as simple as doing the opposite right like if we don't track if we don't offer remedial below level classes but we put kids together in these heterogeneous groups you know what happens right Um, and what the research has told us happens is amazing things for everyone if we don't separate kids and segregate them and call them self-contained and lovely names and put them in portables far away from other children but put them together um, like the example that you shared about the student like how do they learn from each other and then grow from each other, right? Um, and like you said, benefits all kids, right? right? So when we keep looking at that, we're like, wow, like we could really change things for everyone if we start to take each of these like items that we have put in place that reinforce the notion of disability as tragedy and we start to move them or undo them. We could really make some tremendous uh, change happen for all of our students.
1: Yeah, that's that's so true. You know, that same... Uh environment i was talking about where that student was speaking and the parents were speaking as well it was interesting that in that situation the parents all were speaking when they when they shared the one thing they thought was profound that the school was able to do positively it always had to do with inclusion in terms of those students being more included and I, you know, it didn't have to do with like, yes, I'm so thankful they were able to be pulled out and get extra attention in this other room. It was just so interesting when they, they, when they were given the opportunity to say the one thing that really made a difference for them, it had to do more with the inclusion. So, um, I just think that that just reinforces what we're learning here. Right.
0: Tremendously powerful. Uh, Mark, I'm wondering, you know, what in the chapter caused you to pause or is still stirring around in your brain?
1: Yeah, good question. You know, on page 50, there was a quote and uh, here's here's what it is. It's, uh, the problem still is that these initiatives are still framed around remedial premises. And, you know, that really hit me, Audrey, because, you know, I think about even some of the big projects that, you know, we're in California, the big projects that are across the state level and so forth, it made me start to think about how many of these projects are based on a remedial premise? Um, So it it just reminded me how this this whole notion of deficit, it's just baked into our systems. You know, it's it's baked into the phrase achievement gap, um, you know, where we're saying, we're seeing how far these students are away from these other students, and we want to close the gap so these quote unquote lower students can be where these higher students are. And there's many uh, racial, you know, implications to the way we talk about that. And so it's really made me think about, you know, of course, with that phrase achievement gap, people changing the language back to language matters, right? Like using the phrase opportunity gap and allowing us to think about like, are we just thinking in these remedial premises? Are we just thinking of new names of sort of disguising the same deficit thinking that is still underneath there. And we've just sort of painted over it with, with these well-intended things. Um, so I think back to well-intended, right? We want impact in first children. And I think we want to make sure that, um, what we're doing is not a disguised and just deficit thinking in disguise is what I'm trying to say. Right.
0: Yeah. I think those are great points. And I think if we go back to that quote that Keep circling back on from chapter one. <laughs> it says it's we have it backwards. Mathematics needs disabled students, yeah. right? Like if right. that's if we can really hold on to that, like we are missing out every time we exclude them from the mathematics by saying, "Sorry, what you what you need to be doing is X, Y, and Z instead," right? Um, don't engage in this high level thinking over here. Don't even attempt to tell us how you see the world in mathematics. But instead, go do. Let me try to fix you. You know the quote unquote fix piece um, that there's some kind of normal that we're all trying to get people to, um, or there's a measuring stick that, that we're all trying to achieve towards, um, you know, it really, it really limits what everyone can achieve. It really, really does. It limits what all of us can see and limits the beauty of mathematics. It limits all of our access to to understanding and seeing that beauty.
1: Yeah, that that's, that's really true. Um, so Audrey, as we're talking uh, through this episode, you know we, we've been sharing a lot of things that that are really challenging about the system we're in and so it's making me think there was a question that maybe we could use in the book here that maybe we can share some ideas and just have a quick discussion right now about how we could counter this narrative um because i know that one of the things we're trying to do in this podcast is like what are things that we can do as educators to to push against this system that's not trying to be interrupted right uh, so the question that i see on page 44 um is what sort of practices in and out of the classroom would you promote to foster mathematics for all? of all? Oh, I love how they remember they changed that word of all. And so um, I'll start by sharing one that that I thought about, and it actually connects back to our previous podcast um, um, from uh, the book that we did by Peter Lilliadal and uh, Thinking Classrooms. And you know what I was thinking, Audrey, is that that whole notion of visibly random groups and how students are valued and they're they're in different groups each day and that whole piece about them bringing the knowledge they have, the assets of knowledge they have into that group. Um, Audrey, I just went right back to our last season and, and pulled that one. What do you think about that? I
0: think that is absolutely the first thing that came to mind for me too, um, Mark, is this idea of how empowering it is for all students when you do visibly random groups to say like your voice matters on how you see this problem, how you see this, this piece. But I, and I think that the added piece to that, that I would say maybe fits to that is that there's something then worthwhile to talk about, you know, Peter's Mm. work talks about that the task has to be something worth doing right. Um, And worth grappling with and thinking about what that means to have a high quality task, something that, you know, it's not a mundane um, exploration that someone else already knows the answer to. I think, I think there's a real piece there where then we really get to see everyone's knowledge and how they see it. And that's the times when I, I think about when I've sat in a room where I might've held an assumption and someone said something around a problem like that. And it's like, whoa, not only did you just break all of my assumptions down, but you just shared something that now has me like, wrapped up in my mind about like, what else could we do? Like, you've just empowered me too. Right. So I think about the positive um, opportunity for that.
1: Oh, for sure. And, you know, just above that question, you know, the authors use that, those phrases, funds of knowledge and funds of identity. And wouldn't it be great as mathematics educators, as we continue to push ourselves, like you were talking about Audrey with tasks, like? how do we continue to push ourselves so that the tasks that we put in front of students in those visibly random groups are activating those funds of knowledge and funds of identity, so that we're anticipating the fact that our students with disabilities, they're gonna bring those funds into the room and actually not just have them in the room, the students that are working with them are going to appreciate the funds they're bringing to the group because they're gonna actually make their group better.
0: I love that. I think that's a great connection there. Mark, I'm curious about like, what's something that you're gonna walk away from this chapter with, what's a lasting takeaway that you might offer for our listeners and that you're holding on to for yourself?
1: Yeah, good question. You know, I think my lasting takeaway with this chapter really is that section around families and how we position families uh, and their expertise. As I think back to my work with students with disabilities, i think a lot of times when i was in iep conferences or other parent meetings i felt like i was i was sort of like almost like a different version of sage on the stage right like i'm i'm the expert and i'm going to help you into how to do school at home with your student and and sort of just be i'm i'm you know the knowledgeable educator that i i want to make sure that you know how to help thing, help help out and you know Audrey, I think I really missed opportunities to sort of have this phrase that is in the chapter cultural humility. Like, you know, why wasn't I asking parents more about what are the funds of knowledge that they have to bring into this particular situation? I probably could have got more insights of the strengths of the student as well, if I would have done more of an inquiry view to that. But I think, to be honest, Audrey, I think I still had this deficit view baked into my beliefs around the students I was working with. And I think I just kind of passed that on to the parents to some degree. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I think there was something like that going on because, boy, there was a lot of talking by me and not a lot, and a lot of head nodding from them. What about you?
0: Well, first of all, Mark, I just really appreciate the real vulnerable. Vulnerability You just shared about like that, that example. And I think I can relate to that myself. Um, and I appreciate that. I think for me, um, I'm holding on the last words of this chapter, just, I read them several times. I'm going to read them aloud again, because I think they're just, they're just what I need right now. So here I go. The last sentence of the chapter says, with the right collaborative partnerships, adherence to social and revolutionary models of disability, Believing that mathematics belongs to our students, and with a good deal of trusting perseverance, great things are possible. Mm. And I got to tell you, sitting here as we are in um, late July recording this, um, looking as some of our schools in the area have just started their year. Other ones are just a couple weeks away from starting off on a new school year. Um, it's really easy to get overwhelmed by looking at all the things we talked about and saying like, man, the system is not designed to view it any other way but tragic. And how do we change it? And I, and I think this is the recipe right here. The recipe is right here in this last sentence. Um, it leaves us with the hope that we can actually make some amazing things happen for our students this year. Um, and so I would just, I think my lasting takeaway is like, pick one of these things that we're gonna mm-hmm. work on, right? Like, right. is it a collaborative partnership that you're gonna look at differently across across the lines of, you know, generalist versus special education um, expertise? Is it that you're going to really think about getting rid of that disability as tragedy, you know, and disability as, a, um, as thinking about it as a medical model and thinking about it instead as a social model and saying like, what's my responsibility as the educator here in the room? Or how I am providing and caring for my students. Um, maybe it's really about that belief that our mathematics belongs to our students. I think for me as a high school teacher for many years, that might've been the one I needed to start with myself, um, that it wasn't my mathematics, it's theirs. Um, and maybe, maybe all those things are working for you, but you need to just have that trusting perseverance this year. And I know it's coming off of a really tough Last year for so many educators, and I'm hoping you've had the rest you need to head into a new great year. Um, but I think that recipe right there is such an encouragement to me. I'm holding on to it um, with both a lot of hope, um, but also a lot of um, thinking that this might actually be what we need in order to make great things happen in our new school year.
1: Oh, wow. Um, you know, Audrey, I really like how you took that quote and really just unpacked the pieces of it and really basically just identified like four or five little next steps that we could pull out of there. Um, I also appreciate the spirit of what you're saying in terms of just, just a small step. I mean, everything we've been talking about today does seem a bit daunting and overwhelming. Um, but sometimes the smallest first steps Um, can make such a difference for the children that we work with. So um, um, I'm excited to hear if if some of our listeners are going to make that small step. Um, Great. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter six, powerful mathematics goals in the individualized educational plan, IEPs. I'm looking forward to that conversation, Audrey. (laughs) Until then, Send us a tweet with the hashtag SUMMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes in forging new paths.